Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. On this edition of On the Mark with yours truly, Mark Carmen. Yes, David Ross has been hired, and the new skipper for the Chicago Cubs joins me on the program. Second part today, that's right, former NBA referee Tim Donahue has a movie out. It's called Inside Game, and it details his stories in the NBA, how he got banned from the NBA, and Tim's going to tell us a story about Dennis Rodman and herpes that you won't want to miss. On the Mark with yours truly, Mark Carmen starts right now. Up first, the Cubs' new manager, David Ross. So I talked to you. You were promoting diapers on on September the 18th, and I'm like, well, i got to ask David Ross, is, does he have interest? And then I was surprised and interested like that it was clear that you did so i'm just rewinding back did you know that this was coming down the pipe you know a possibility what would you what would you say about looking back i just think you know in the roles i've had and and especially with the tv stuff being in these different um locker rooms and a lot of conversations with really close friends aaron boone uh kevin cash as i passed through uh, alex core dave roberts they're all ex-teammates of mine and so i've just kind of inquired about it you know my name's been thrown out there the last couple years with some different jobs and you know you start asking yourself that question a little more the more it gets in the media the more um people start talking about it you start to kind of figure and then you know you start to you ask me is like this this is this organization obviously means a lot to me and so um, my heart is drawn to that dugout when i come here i i've wanted to be back in that dugout just in some capacity uh, for a long long time but you know i I trying to balance um a lot of you know family stuff and job stuff and so um yeah when this when this when this came available i mean who who turns down this job like what what yeah everybody be calling me an idiot See, I was, they were saying, no, nah, Ross, is, I'm like, really? He wouldn't be interested in managing the Chicago Cubs? That doesn't make sense to me. And, and there you go. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, it doesn't, just like, Theo's like, can you come in? And just, yes, yes, sir. Let me let me know when you when you need me. And, and uh, I tell you what, that phone call from him and, and telling me I got the job was, was just, I was over the moon, emotional, super excited. Um, man, just, yeah, there's not a, not a more iconic, you know, you get a chance to lead, 
uh, one of the most iconic organizations in, in all of pro sports in the world. You know, you, you don't turn that down, and, and you take it very seriously. And it's a huge honor, and I know there's a lot of expectations, and I'm up for the challenge. I'm excited. Was there any question in the interview press where like, uh-oh, I might have messed up that one? Oh yeah, I mean, there's there there's there in the interview process. There's like some areas where you're like, oh, I killed that, I nailed it. Like you know, feel like it felt awesome, top of the world. And there's some you're just like, man, I don't, I hadn't thought about it like that, or hadn't seen the game that way. And so yeah, just a lot of those things, the the analytical side, just knowing. Yeah, that's the stuff I'm going to dive into as soon as I'm done here. Just getting to know as much as I can from the analytical side, stuff I thought I knew, but there's just some deeper things that I got to get gra- a grasp on. So you mentioned in the press conference about Grandpa Rossi and all that. I'm, you're a kind of a made man in town. You won a World Series here, and you're, in some ways, you're putting that on the line because you, you know, I can look at like John Paxson for the Bulls he had a game-winning shot in the '93 Finals. Gets a lot of flack now, so it's a different guy. So, but you're, I mean, I guess it's, you're not about that. I'm guessing. Yeah, I mean, I I thought about that. I mean, like I roll into this town and they treat me like king, and I understand that that's going to change, you know, unless you put another trophy up, uh, or or multiple trophies. So, you know, I understand that, and that's part of it going in. But my passion isn't, you know, fame or or you know, coming and getting free dinners in Chicago. It's it's about people, and it's about winning championships, and. Um, I've been a part of history twice, and, and it's a special, special thing that uh, you can't ever replace. And, and having a chance to lead men to do something special that's historic is where my heart lies. And it's not just the winning, though, too, right? You enjoy the actual process. Yeah, yeah it's a grind. I mean, it's the, it's, the, it's the ups and downs, you know, like, like problem solving, how to figure it out, what's going wrong. Um, just constantly uh, a passion for uh, success, I think, is is what drives you. You know, you you know, it, it's funny as players and especially in a manager, like the wins are expected and the losses are what what kill you, right? And so I've seen that. I've seen it on my friends we've it, that are managers, and we've talked about it. So, but that's just that's that's the way we're wired. It's the way I'm wired. You're trying to fix uh, the losses and just kind of okay, we won that one. On to the next one. Have you thought about? You know, after a game I go for four, how I shook that off versus how do I, we lost and this decision, that decision, this guy's struggling. You could be, you could drive yourself nuts till four in the morning. Yeah, well, I, I think a lot of managers do lose sleep, right? But, I, you know, I'm going to rely heavily on my coaches with a lot of that. I want to, I, I want my coaches to hold me accountable. I want to tell me the truth of, of where I make mistakes. I'm going to make some. I'm, I don't have all the answers. Uh, it's a collaborative thing for me. At, at the end of the day, uh, I make the final decision, but I'm going to rely heavily on the front office and the coaches and, and even the players. Players, the feedback from the players, the guys I have a relationship with, just a lot of open, honest conversations. Realistic expectations for 2020, how you're looking at it right now? World Series, right? Like, I mean, I want to win the World Series. We got the talents there. Ain't no doubt about it. There's a lot of talent on that field. Um, that's I'll never not put my eye on the biggest goal, and that's winning World Series. I learned that early on in my career. Why ever settle for anything less? It's not about making the playoffs. It's about, it's about hanging banners and winning trophies. That's the stuff I came back for, and that's what I'm passionate about. Last one, you have you reached out to John and or Anthony who, like, are you, you got a smile on your face right now, like, I'm going to go out to the mountain, I'm going to take you out, dude, and you're, you're probably not going to like it. I told John, I, I told John, I say, I'm coming to get the ball from you. Don't don't you show me up in front of all these people, jokingly, right? Um, yeah, man, we've had some conversations. I told him I'd reach out a little more. Uh, they had a lot of questions. Uh, they've both been calling me Skipper over text messaging, which makes me laugh a little bit um, and smile all at the same time. I'm, uh, I, I'm in a different role, but um, those relationships are going to go a long way. I'm going to lean on those guys that I know well, the hobbies, um, 
you know, the Lester's, the Riz, the uh, KBs, these guys that I know really well um, to give me just some honest feedback about how I'm doing sometimes. And then uh, I'm going to give them some honest feedback about what I expect from them uh, and, 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 and their effort on a daily basis. And then for real, last one, this team, there's a lot of conversations around Chicago's. If they don't win another World Series, will it be a disappointment? And I remember walking around Wrigley when you guys just won the pennant. And I remember inter- interviewing you on the field that night. People were crying. I'm like, is this the best night of your life? Yes. Have you had kids? Yes. So, I mean, in my mind, it's a success no matter what. But how, how do you look at that that part of it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, expectation winning brings even more expectations, right? So, but that's a good thing. I, expectations, as Joe used to say, a guy I'll, I'll pull a lot of uh, kind of my my things from, and it was a huge influence on me. Winning expectations are a great thing, and and I, I don't want to be in a place that I have high expectations. So yes, that's why we're here. We're here to win more championships. The Ricketts want more. The front office wants more. Theo and Jed, they're going to hold each other, all of us, to that standard. And and I think if you ask these players, that's what they want. That's that's the, that's the game changer. That's the stuff that that is is historic, and that you just you go back to those amazing memories of the grind of a season, and and all the good and bad that's going to come throughout the season. But then you get to hold up that trophy at the end. That's what it's all about. Congrats, man! Great to see you. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Before we get to Tim Donahue, let's talk with the Cubs president Theo Epstein. And yes, you just heard from David Ross. I think he's going to do great. He certainly has the media part down. He's awesome to talk to, and he seems like a great guy, and I think the Cubs, their players specifically, are going to love him, the fans as well. But let's hear from Theo. Why, Theo Epstein, was David Ross the choice? In the end, I think we came back to that, you know, David's special gifts as a leader, um, the things you just can't teach. He excels at so much. And as and already as a head start, I'm learning the things that he needs to, to get up to speed on as a manager that we feel like in short time will grow into being you know spe- a special manager. He's just you know those natural leadership skills, the communication skills, the ability to tell players things they don't necessarily want to hear, but but still have the magnetism to keep them coming back for more. You know, it's easy to get in a player's face. Anyone can do that. It's hard. It's hard to get in their face and then have them come back half an hour later and you know want to talk about it more and still want to be around you he's just got that special gift where he can be engaging and develop close bonds while also holding guys accountable it's not easy fair enough makes sense so what was the problem with joe madden who won a world series i'm not going to go through his entire resume i'm a huge joe madden fan but there was something when you watch the cubs play that just felt off and I would kind of call it a deadness. Satisfied, won the World Series, not nearly as motivated. So that did come out talking to Theo yesterday as he detailed how the Cubs really were a team, at least before the game, and a lot of guys expressing this, I guess, on their exit interviews, which you're about to hear, that they really weren't together. That was an observation that David had as well, and I was glad because we shared those thoughts, especially after... It was so prominently expressed in the exit interview. Guys felt there wasn't enough um, team bonding off the field to to begin with. But then uh, while we're at work, um, 
you know, our guys' routines have evolved to be so individual that there just wasn't much time when we were actually together as a team, either you know practicing on the field or you know, together talking strategy, talking baseball. So I think that it's going to be a priority going forward just to try to um, rebuild some togetherness and, and make sure those special bonds get created that we, we work together and hopefully we play together as well. Interesting, right? They're professional baseball players. This is not a high school team. You wouldn't think that team bonding, so to speak, is needed. But apparently it is. And that's one of the things, by the way, that Joe Madden would do. He'd have the road trips, the put on the jersey, wear the animal outfits, bring in the flamingo, something to bring the guys together. But maybe after a period of time, that just gets a little old. And perhaps guys obviously got complacent. So David Ross is probably going to do this in a more old school way. I wouldn't expect flamingos or whatever. But as far as getting guys together, it's something he noticed. Theo agrees with it. The players are talking about it. So that'll be something different for the Cubs in 2020. I do think you need some players to add into that mix to sort of boil it all together that it will really feel different. You're not going to change the personalities of who's in there. So they need kind of a David Ross type, at least in my mind, as a player to join into the mix to sort of bring that camaraderie together. Somebody who wants to actually talk baseball after the game. Here is Theo on Ross's leadership skills and how he challenges guys. He'd be the guy telling players what they needed to hear, not what they wanted to hear. And they would still keep coming back with bonds of friendship and bonds as teammates and brothers. So, um, you know, I, 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 after talking to a few of our players, I think some of them are rooting for somebody else just so they you know, make it a little bit easier road for them. But it's, it's not high on a list of concerns. And honestly, at this point, you're talking, what, eight, eight or so guys, maybe a couple more, depending on how things shake out. And then, and then you know, baseball keeps moving forward. So there's going to be a point where, you know, he's, he's got all – you know, no former teammates that he's uh, that he's working with at some point. You got to love that, and I trust it. I think it's clear that Theo loves this guy, and I think he knows what he's doing. And quite frankly, by the way, I was sold on David Ross a long time ago when everyone else was. The Cubs won the World Series, and that was the biggest game, obviously, in franchise history, and it was in Game 7 on the road, which I'm sure you remember. But they won the pennant at home in six games over the Dodgers. And I've never seen Wrigley Field like that, ever. I was walking through the crowd. People are crying. I'm interviewing fans. Is this the greatest day of your life? Yes. Do you have kids? Yes. Is this better than having kids? Yes. And the players are out on the field celebrating. And, of course, David Ross was one of those guys. So I thought it'd be nice just to look back and go back to that night. Cubs beat the Dodgers, and this was Ross on the field. With David Ross, watching you on stage and see the emotions well up, man, that's big time. It was just so cool. Uh, the love, the, 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 the cheer. I mean, when you got 45,000, 50,000 people cheering for you when they, when they announce your name on stage, it's just it doesn't get any better than that. And, and I, don't, I don't know. I, I, I love it. I don't know why they do it. They, they treat me so good. I, you know, it's so nice to hear that. It just, it, it, it warms my heart. It just fills me up with joy and, and makes me so emotional because 
um, you know, I'm a backup catcher and a guy that just tries to tries to contribute to the team and, and works hard and do my part. And these guys treat me with a lot of respect and fans give me a lot of love and it just is, it's overwhelming. Well, the city is about hard work and they love team guys and they see that in you. I mean, you don't have to really figure it out more than that. That's that's the love right there, and you, you perform pretty well too. Well, you know, yeah, yeah, playing well always helps, you know. But yeah, the the the, the success here with this group and, and and being on this stage and um, you know all the love you get from these fans is just I'm so happy for them and uh, being in this environment. Great energy tonight at the stadium coming in today. You could just feel the buzz in the city. Walking around, I was getting a coffee this morning, and you could just feel the buzz. Everybody excited, tapping me, telling me good luck, and. Uh, you just feel the love all the way, all the way around the city, everywhere I go. And um, there's good people here. There's good quality values in here, and and it's nice to for me to be able to end my career here with my family. It's, it's a real special moment tonight. Last one for you, WGN TV's lurking on me. I see you, Dan Roan. So, when did you know that this group could do what you've done at this point, and hopefully four more? I think last year we grew into uh, the winner that you saw, you know, and getting being able to do what we did last year and. Uh, guys continue to work hard in the offseason and all the way through spring training and it's been our goal to get to this point and, and, and win a World Series and now we're going we have that chance so it's a, it's a credit to the coaching staff and the front office for spending the money and, and the ownership and uh, the whole group will continue to get better and work hard toward this goal and uh, you don't see a lot of teams that, that you know set their goals as high as we do and and are able to reach them. So we're, uh, we're on our way there, and we got one more step. David Ross, the city loves you. You'll never have to buy dinner here. Congratulations. <laughs> Thanks for having me. One of the greatest nights in Cub baseball history. All right, we move on. Let us bring in the conversation with Tim Donahue, 52 years old now, banned from the NBA, cheated on games, provided information, and he's got a movie out. Here comes the former ref, Tim Donahue, on On the Mark with yours truly, Mark Harmon. It is my pleasure to bring in Tim Donahue, NBA ref from 1994 to 2007. And of course, Tim was involved in the NBA's gambling scandal in the mid-2000s, Tim was providing information to gamblers, ended up getting caught, and has been banned from the NBA. He's now has a movie that is about him called Inside Game, and Tim joining us now. Tim, this movie is going to detail in depth what you did in the NBA, going to perhaps expose you to people who don't know your story. This has to feel super vulnerable. This movie is going to be out there with your yourself and your dad and a lot of people you know. How's it feeling for you knowing that people are going to see sort of the inside part of the story and inside game? You know, obviously, uh, you know, when I was going through the whole situation in 2007, it was very embarrassing, and, and it is still as embarrassing 10 years later to see it play out in the movie Inside Game. Uh, so it's, it's uh, a situation where uh, a lot of poor choices are, are shown in the movie that I made. Uh, but hopefully uh, something positive is going to come from that and that a lot of people are going to learn from it. So uh, it's an exciting uh, uh, time to, to see the movie, but in the same sense, it's a little embarrassing. Tim, where did the muscle come from for you to continue to do these interviews and sort of, I guess, relive it all the time? Because you've been on a ton of radio and you're talking to me today and we're going to hit some different points in the conversation, hopefully. But this is something that you do all the time and it can't be easy. You know, I think that, uh, you know, I don't like to put, uh, you know, any uh, 
you know, stop buttons in in any interviews that I do. Uh, I think if I can, you know, let people know, uh, you know, in an honest way what I did and how I do did it and the transparency, uh, you know, helps, uh, you know, have, to have people forgive you. And, uh, you know, I'm very fortunate that we live in a very, uh, you know, um, forgiving society and, and people have been very nice to me even though that I really did some dumb things and made some poor choices so uh, with that being said uh, you know I think it's a situation especially in the movie Inside Game where you can see that those poor choices not only affected me but the people that I love the most and that's my family and uh, we can all learn from it. Yeah so you've got four daughters correct Tim? Yes. So and how old were they at the time when uh, this was all coming apart in 2007? Yeah, 13, 14, uh, you know, 7 and 9. So, uh, you know, they were, they were young. Okay. And what was the conversation that you were having with your family at the time? You know, basically that I made some poor choices. I, I made some mistakes, and I was going to have to pay for that. I was going to have to pay for it by losing my job and not only losing my job, uh, you know, going away for a 15-month jail sentence. So, uh, you know, my kids were very understanding, very forgiving. I'm uh, very fortunate that I've been able to rebuild my life with the help of uh, family and friends. And, and my uh, youngest daughter has been living with me full-time for the last eight years. Oh, wow. I, I would think, though, that, I don't know, if I was your kid, Tim, I'd be like, Dad, why did you do that? Why are you leaving me? I mean, were you having those kind of conversations? For sure, and it was extremely difficult. I remember when I was in prison and my daughters came for a visit, and when it was time to leave, the youngest one ran jumped up in my arms and, and gave me the biggest, strongest hug and told me that she wasn't going to leave, that she was going to stay there with me. Oh, my God. So, uh, yeah, it was it was definitely heart-wrenching at the time. And even when I think back uh, about that day, it, it gets me a little emotional. Yeah. Well, time heals all wounds, so to speak, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, let me bring up the name Jimmy Batista. If you... How much of you meeting Jimmy, not that you're putting it on him or anyone in particular, you make your own choices in life, I, I think everybody knows that, but how much did that friendship end up uh, impacting your life in a negative way? Well, he wasn't really a friend. He was an associate of the Gambino crime family that happened to go to the same high school with me. My friend was Tommy Martino, who knew him also. He kind of tricked Tommy into setting up a meeting between the three of us uh, and with that being said, uh, you know, he was the guy that uh, was moving a lot of money. He was a guy that was in debt to a lot of people. Uh, he was betting hundreds of thousands of dollars on each one of these plays and uh, giving information to the Gambino crime family. And eventually it was heard over a Gambino wiretap, and, and that's how the whole thing was exposed. Right, right. So, and then, okay, it, they get it word, you're on tape. What went down when they approached you? Uh, the FBI agents? Yeah. Yeah, uh, what happened was is Tommy had called me and said the FBI had been at his house for three days uh, asking him questions. And, uh, you know, with that being said, I went to an attorney because I knew it was about me. In the next 30 days, I lost 30 pounds. Like I couldn't eat or drink anything. And the stress was just enormous on my life. I knew I was in a lot of trouble. I had an attorney call the United States attorney that was working the case, and he basically said, you know, you tell Tim Dunney, I know what you did. Uh, I know who you did it with. You're going to lose your job, but if you don't come to us and work with us, not only are you going to lose your job, but you're going to go to jail for a long, long time. 
And with that threat, I got on the plane the next day and went to New York and sat down with the FBI agents and told them what I did and how I did it. And you maintain to this day, Tim, that, and, I, and I believe you, by the way, for the record here, but you, you maintain you did not fix games. You just had access to information. Is that correct? Yes, and even the FBI and uh, the NBA concluded that I didn't go out and fix games. And, and what I mean by that is putting stars to the bench and, and making up fouls to, to make sure a bet won. Uh, the only thing I did was within the scope of the rule book, you know, I may have targeted certain players with that crew that night and, uh, you know, called violations on them. And, uh, maybe were let go in previous games, but for whatever, whatever reason, we were going to enforce them strictly that night because maybe of a vendetta between a, a referee and a player that we were going to enforce. So you and your fellow officials would go out before the game and be like, if X player, I don't know who we're talking about here, Tim Duncan, Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, if he does this particular move we're going to call it is that how those conversations would go yes it was alan iverson who had threatened steve javi the, the game before and we all felt at the staff that he should have been suspended and he was only fined twenty thousand dollars i had the next game and the two officials i was working with and myself decided that we were going to go out and call palming violations on him even though he got away with that uh you know his whole career and we went out in the first half called three palming violations on him, and he came up to me and said, you know, hey, Tim, how long is this going to last for? And I basically told him, I, you know, I don't know what you're talking about, Alan. And he laughed and looked at me, and he said, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and I kind of laughed back at him. So it, it was just a matter of time that he was going to uh, be scrutinized uh, because of the fact that he had threatened to kill one of our coworkers. And who did he threaten again? He threatened Steve Javi, right. was one of the top officials at the time. Right, and why was he threatening Steve Javi? Because Javi just had an ongoing battle with him every time he officiated him. So uh, Alan had had enough, and I think Steve was you know, giving him technical fouls or throwing him out of the game. And as he was walking off the court, he told him that, you know, he was going to kill him. And basically, uh, you know, it was something that we felt that he should have been suspended for, and he was only fined. So why doesn't the league's got to know that this is going on? Why do they not get involved on, uh, with you guys, the referees, or with the players? You know, Joey Crawford had a long-time thing going on with Tim Duncan and the Spurs, and yet he would pop up and he'd be refereeing a Spur game. Like, that, that never added up to me. No, and I think now that they really uh, make sure that the animosity between uh, referees and players either gets settled or the referees are held, uh, you know, off of their games. In the past, there were only 58 referees, so you would see the same team, uh, you know, maybe once, twice, three times a week, or even, uh, you know, couple times more that month but now they have so many referees they kind of don't allow the referees to see the same teams as often as they did in the past okay all right let me, let me rewind back here i, I want to ask a couple more questions on, on jimmy batista who i was watching one of his videos and he he said that based on your information you guys would have a code word i guess it was schmaga where he, which he would up your pay if you gave him some like really hot information where you, you were super confident about a game is that accurate Yes, uh, uh, Joey, we nicknamed him Schmaga, was a handicapped child that lived in the neighborhood of the Martinos that we always took out to lunch and really was a part of all our families for 20-some years. So that was the words we used uh, if the play was just, uh, you know, so good that, that you know, he, he needed to bet everything he could on it. And, uh, and we would just call it a Schmaga. Tim, can you give me an example of a, of a Schmaga game? Uh, one time I was in Washington. And, 
Mike Fratello was uh, coaching the Memphis Grizzlies, and he was coming in for that game, and one of the team personnel saw him as he was getting off the bunch bus, and Mike Fratello told him that he was sitting four of his five starters and basically was going to be a throw-in game for them the rest, and uh, I knew Washington was going to win and win big, so, uh, you know, I, I called up Tommy Martino and told him that, you know, it's a, it's a schmogger, you know, Washington's going to win uh, and cover, and, and they're going to win by 20 or 30 points, and with not, not explaining to him why, you know, uh, he passed that information along to Batista, and they were able to capitalize on it. It came in, huh? That was a winner? Absolutely. We, we wanted a, a 85% clip. There was very few times where we had problems that we had a, a bet that lost. And, and you would get, what, 5000 for a regular game and, and a schmaga? Is that right? You get 200 and some odd thousand dollars? No, I got $2,000 per correct play. The money was always a problem. I just wanted to be done with Batista. Uh, there was a lot of times where uh, Tommy and I didn't even get paid because he was on drugs and he was doing online poker and he was losing millions of dollars uh, doing things that he shouldn't have been doing. So the, the money really never came flowing back to us like it was supposed to. Interesting. So did you have to pay back dough as well, Tim? Uh, I had to pay back $30,000 to the, uh, the government, which was the $30,000 that Tommy Martino had given me from this scheme. Okay. Did you, did you benefit financially overall, would you say? I benefited, you know, the $30,000, and that's why I had to pay it back. And I think that was in a period of three months. Okay, okay. How, when you look back on it, Tim, how, how do you think you fell into this? Uh, just by making poor choices, hanging out with the wrong people, and, and crossing lines that I should not have even been near. Uh, so, you know, it, it really in the movie Inside Game, uh, that's what really comes out the most is uh, – you know, how uh, we really screwed up and made some poor, poor choices, but because we had such strong families and, and parents and brothers and sisters, we were able to get through it and then had our family stand by us. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm just playing amateur psychologist here. I'm thinking to myself, like, okay, you've got this great position in life. You're an NBA referee, nearly impossible to get to. Here you are. You're refereeing Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan. you got to be loving your life, you would think. But... There's got to be maybe either some belief that you're either A, invincible, or B, um, you know, it's, it's still not even good enough. Like, I want to, maybe I need to impress people by driving an even fancier car. I'm, I'm trying to understand that part of it. Oh, no doubt about it. A, a little bit of greed, a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, thinking that you're invincible, as you said, and, and going out and just making poor decision after poor decision. Uh, you know, you're, you're on the top of the world. You have a great job making... Uh, more money than you ever dreamed of. So uh, I tossed that all away because of, you know, my addiction to gambling and, and my need for that, uh, you know, uh, juice of, of adrenaline from the gambling. Yeah. So at the end of the day, it's almost the excitement of it, right? It's not even, it's not even the money. It's more like the thrill of getting away with it. Is that, is that accurate? Oh, absolutely. It was definitely just uh, I got that uh, high from gambling and whether it was on the golf course in Atlantic City or betting on NBA games and, it just started to consume my life. Yeah. yeah. 772 regular season games. You ref 20 in the playoffs. What, what do you miss about it the most? Uh, just, uh, you know, being on the floor in front of 20,000 people running up and down the court with the greatest athletes in the world. So, uh, you know, you're right there with all the stars. And, and uh, you know, I watched it on TV, and, and I think to myself that that should be me, and, and it's not. So it, it's difficult from time to time to really watch a game. Yeah, how do you get – how do you – coach yourself to get through it i mean outside of i mean that's probably what i would do i don't know how, how much i could actually watch but when you are watching like how do you 
sort of tell yourself, like, you know what, hey, this is my life right now, and you can't walk around with this because it's going to eat you up. Right, and I have, uh, you know, great kids that, you know, really lift me up during the course of the day, great parents. I'm very fortunate that I got involved in real estate. I got involved in, uh, you know, refpicks.com and, and, you know, this movie Inside Game, which is, uh, you know, a great message. So I think it's going to really lead to some bigger and better things. Do you enjoy doing these interviews, Tim, or is it, is it kind of painful for you? Uh, but to be honest with you, it's it's painful to a certain extent that to continue to relive it. It's a it's the story that won't ever die because it's got all those things in it that, that people love. It's it's gambling, it's it's women, it's it's drugs, it's the mob, and uh, you know it's all portrayed and played out great in the movie. And and that's why I think uh, you know people are going to really enjoy it. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to watching it. Your your dad, uh, you know, is a Final Four official, which obviously helped you move along the referee ranks. Not saying you weren't incredibly qualified, Tim, but you know, you it's such a competitive thing. You you need that name recognition, and you had it. And I know that your dad has pushed you to say, hey, okay, whatever whatever's in the future, you're going to be the best you can at that. But uh, somebody who did actually do the job was that was it more perhaps extra hard for him to digest what had gone on. Oh, no doubt about it. I think it was very difficult for him once he really realized what I did and, and what I was involved in. But I have to give him a lot of credit. When I called him in 2007 on Father's Day to wish him a happy Father's Day, uh, you know, he said to me within 30 seconds, you know, you don't sound right. What's wrong? And, um, you know, I told him what I did. And he said, listen, I don't know how, how or this is going to turn out, uh, but, you know, I'll be with you every step of the way. So just try and stay calm. And, the relationship between me and my father uh, is portrayed uh, really well in, in the movie, and you'll see that. And that's what makes it so important to me that, you know, it really shows the choices and it shows how important family is. Now that is a great parent, right? Yes, no doubt. Because your kids aren't going to be perfect. They're going to make mistakes. What are you going to do when they do? Even if it's... Right, and, and I made a mistake in, in front of the whole world. I embarrassed not only myself but them, so... For them to do what they did and stand by me the way they did is something that I'm very, very grateful for. Yeah, I'm feeling. The, I'm actually feeling the emotion on that one right now. That's a that's a that's a that's a big time dad right there. Let, let me ask you a couple questions on the court before you go here, Tim. We're all looking forward to seeing the movie Inside Game. Uh, well, number one, you're on the court in the Malice in the Palace. If you could rewind back to that night and do something different so that doesn't happen, was there anything that you could have done that you know we could have avoided Ben Wallace and Ron Artest and the whole thing? As a referee, there's always something you can do when a situation like that exists. I had grabbed Ron Artest and tried to hold on to him from, uh, you know, going up into the stands. I think if I would have gotten to him a little bit sooner uh, and maybe tried to talk to him before he ran up there, it could have avoided that whole situation because that's when it escalated to the next level. So, uh, you know, looking back, uh, you know, you should I should have probably got to him sooner. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Ron's a crazy man, but he's also a very likable guy at the same time, correct? Absolutely. Uh, you know, like I just said in, in a lot of these interviews I'm doing, people don't realize that when the players go onto the court, uh, their adrenaline them and their competitiveness gets the best of them, and they really turn into somebody that they're not off the court. So, uh, you know, the competitive nature really spills out into a lot of these sporting events. Would you say that about Rashid Wallace, who waited in a parking lot to kick your ass? Absolutely, I would 100%. Really? I've talked to him, yes. I've talked to him since this whole thing went down. And it shocked me with how well he treated me and how the well wishes came out of his mouth. And I can tell that he was truly sincere. And this is a guy that I squared up the fist fight with, and he was fined a million dollars and suspended. So 
for him to do that, uh, you know, it just shows you what type of character he has. He was fined a million dollars for the parking lot fight. Is that right? Yeah, because he he was suspended, I believe, for seven games. It was the longest suspension ever given at the time, and, and it cost him well over a million dollars. And when did he come and apologize to you about it? Uh, I did a radio interview in Charlotte, and he was one of the co-hosts of the, of the radio show. And, wow. and we had talked on there, and then he called me afterwards. He couldn't have been nicer. Wow. Go Sheed. So a guy like that, he's super competitive on the court, and he can't let it go for a while after. And so he's still steaming in the parking lot. But years after, he's good, basically. Yeah, he was, he was a complete gentleman, and, and I couldn't have been uh, more grateful and, and appreciative for everything he said to me. Uh, let, let, me, let me go back into the league office here. How does, uh, well, let's go back in the day, David Stern, or, or now, I, I don't know if you believe that, Adam Silver and company, I'm sure that the NBA has an agenda that they want. How do they convey that to the referees going into a game where you end up having a, you know, back in the day, a Lakers-Sacramento situation or, or something now where everyone thinks that the NBA wants these teams in the finals I don't know if you believe that. I think you believe that still goes on. I'm curious how the message gets sent down. Absolutely. What they do is they put referees in a room and they show them tapes of previous games of the teams that are playing that night. And they point specific things out that they want those referees to call that night. And it always is putting a team at an advantage or a disadvantage. And we as referees knew that would walk out of those meetings shaking our heads saying, you know, geez, they want the Lakers to win tonight or they want Dallas to win tonight. So it's the way they program and train the referees, especially in the playoffs, of what to go out and look for. And because they're being graded on that, you know, the referees go out and do it. Now, my, my question on that is why would the NBA risk, you know, having one playoff matchup, total drop in the bucket versus, you know, a huge scandal coming out. Wouldn't they think, you know what, look, if we don't get the Lakers in the finals, that's going to suck this year, we're going to lose some money, but grand scheme of things, no big deal. Well, you know, when David Stern did an interview, it's a famous interview he did on, on national TV when the reporter said to him, you know, what's your uh, favorite matchup that could take place in the NBA finals this year? Right, Lakers, with a smirk Lakers. on his face, he said the Lakers versus the Lakers. Right. And, you know, we, we knew that that was important, and, and it's the bottom line. And Dick Bavetta, who was our top referee on the staff at the time, said he was the NBA's go-to guy that he was put on certain games to have a certain outcome. And, you know, I, I never forgot that. And uh, a lot of times where I passed information along, it had to do with Dick Bavetta. See, I hated Dick Bavetta growing up, Tim, because I was a Bulls fan, and they would play the Pistons, and he, I swear to God, he wanted Detroit to win. And I know Michael Jordan had issue with Dick Bavetta. Oh, Mike, Michael Jordan had a summer camp, I'm sure you're aware of it, for, yeah. uh, you know, young men to play in. And uh, some of the referees would go to that camp and officiate for him. Uh, and he would tell them, you know, during breaks, you know, what's up with Dick Bavetta? We all know he cheats. You know, when, we, when he's in our games, we just hope he's cheating for us that night. <laughs> so it's not like the players didn't know, you know, that certain things were going on. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just rewinding back. And, you know, Michael wasn't quite Michael at that point. We're talking late 80s. You know, they hadn't won a title yet. But I would still think the league would have wanted Chicago and the Bulls versus Detroit. But it wasn't going on. Yeah, it wasn't going on at that time. And you, ne you never know what the uh, agenda was at that time or, or what the rating situation is. But, you know, it always just seems that they want that big market team to get in and Sometimes they program and train the referees, the referee, the names on the front and the back of the jerseys, uh, rather than 
enforcing the rules as they're written in the rule book, and that's where they get in trouble, and that's when their uh, fan base starts to see that it's more of a form of entertainment than a competitive-natured sport. Right. I, I don't know if you agree with this uh, line of thinking, too, but my idea is that, look, you can have as big a scandal as you want. Uh, Pete Rose baseball, steroids baseball, gambling, Tim Donahue basketball. Fans are addicted to the sport, to the games, to the action. None of it matters. They will forget it the next day because they love watching the game and they love to gamble. So I don't even think there's a scandal that could knock sports off the pedestal because we are just that addicted to it. Uh, no doubt about it. I think when you, when you look at that and how uh, gambling is just taking over now, it's going to even just become uh, more of a billion-dollar business each year for a lot of these sporting teams because you're going to be doing interactive gambling from your seat in every arena uh, in the next couple of years where even though it's a 20, 25-point blowout, you're staying in your seat because you want to see uh, if James Harden hits his 10 three-pointer because you have the over and you just bet $1,000 for it. So there's going to be a lot of ways that the NBA is going to capitalize from this moving forward, and they're going to need to do it because it seems like they're just having uh, you know, revenue loss from the China situation. So they're going to be very... Uh, you know, competitive and, and come up with ways that they can uh, take part of the action and profit from it. Lad agreed there, Tim, that you're naming, because the NBA is fine. They don't need China's money, right? I mean, it's not like the league's going away. Guys are making $30 million. Jalen Brown, who, nice player, but come on. Uh, why not? Why not, have, why, why not on some level not want to ski behind 15 yachts? And, you know, one yacht's good enough. I can water ski right here. Well, you know, the prices of these NBA franchises have gone through the roof, so they have to continue to bring that revenue in uh, to capitalize on it. And I think that, uh, that you're never going to stop. You're always going to try to find new revenue streams, uh, and that's just the way the business world is. You want to make that bottom line grow each and every year, and, and the NBA is no different. Okay. Where does Tim Donahue go from here? Tim Donaghy goes tonight to the uh, uh, film festival in Los Angeles, California, and, and watches another uh, episode of Inside Game and does some questions and answers. Afterwards, jumps on a plane tomorrow, goes back to his four beautiful daughters, and uh, continues to try to be the best parent, best person he can be. And did I hear you say you're doing real estate on the side? Or is, is that part yes, of your I deal? Do a little, yes, a little bit of real estate, uh, some uh, work with refpicks.com, and a lot of marketing. Uh, for this movie that I believe has a really great message uh, and inside game, and, and I think it's a great learning experience for everybody that watches it. And where will people be able to see the movie? It'll be in uh, 30 NBA cities throughout the country, and uh, you know, once it opens up, I believe it's going to spread out uh, you know, into some of the smaller cities, but uh, for now, we're in, we're in the 30 NBA cities, and uh, you know, uh, it's, it's going to open up November 1st throughout the country. Awesome. All right, Tim, last one before you go. Uh, Michael Jordan is my hero. If you walked down the street and shot someone, I would say he did it in self-defense. So please tell me one Michael Jordan story that I will remember and enjoy. Well, I, I don't have a, a Michael Jordan story, but how about if I hit you with a Dennis Rodman Chicago Bulls story? Sure, sure. Dennis Rodman's warming up, and after each layup, he's, he's coming back and standing near me, getting back in line. He's putting both hands down his pants, and he's scratching his nuts like crazy. He does this five times. Finally, after the fifth time, I said to him, Dennis, what are you doing? And he looked at me and says, Tim, I had almonds for lunch, and it flared up my herpes. And oh. what I'm thinking is, Dennis Rodman's going to get 15 rebounds tonight, touching the ball, then I'm going to have to touch all night, and it just kind of grossed me out. 
That's unbelievable. <laughs> he had the almonds for lunch, and he's busting out that he's got the herp going on, and he tells the referee. Yeah. What, do you, I mean, what did you even say back to him? I, I had my jaw dropped, and all I kept thinking was there better be a lot of towels underneath this basket so I can wipe down this ball every my hands every time I touch it. <laughs> did you like Dennis, or was he a big pain in the ass? Loved him. Loved. No, I loved him. He was a good guy, played hard, and, uh, you know, really never, didn't give the refs, uh, you know, too many problems. Did you, you, did you um, I'm trying to think back your time, 94 to 07. So you never ref Lambeer, correct? Lambeer was my first year. I gave him one technical foul in the second preseason game I had uh, refereed. So I did referee him for one year. I still hate that guy. What would you he's say? He's a tough guy. Yeah, he, he's a tough guy, played dirty, and, uh, you know, uh, was somebody you, you love to be on the floor with as a teammate and hated to play against. Who, who was your least favorite guy to ref? You know, Rashid Wallace, because every time yeah. I went out on the floor, it was a problem. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you were just ready for that. And we used to bet in the locker room uh, $20 a guy to see who would be the first person to give him a technical foul. <laughs> but you appreciate Sheed. Now, who are you still maybe sort of holding a little bit of a grudge against? Nobody. I have no room in my life for that. Uh, you know, I, I'm hoping people are, uh, you know, not holding grudges against me and, and continue to uh, look at me and, and understand I made some poor choices and made some mistakes. So. I, I don't have animosity towards anybody. Fair enough, fair enough. Let me ask it a different way. Who did you ref that n committed uh, 17 million fouls and never thought they once fouled anyone? Rashid. He <laughs> never thought he could whack somebody against the, the head. He could be bleeding from his nose, and, and he starts screaming and cursing at you, like, you know, why are you calling this? I didn't touch him. <laughs> she was a beauty. Uh, Tim, yes. great to talk to you. Best of luck with the movie. I'm looking forward to watching it uh, inside game and uh thanks for sharing so much today and, and on the way out here props to your dad uh mr donnie you are a, you're, you're a star thanks so much i appreciate it thanks pal that was fun talking with tim donahue looking forward to seeing the movie all right let's wrap up my final thoughts and yes, I'm going to talk about the quarterback of the Chicago Bears and the head coach, Matt Nagy. A lot of Bears fans are turning on Nagy right now. I happen to not be one of those people. I don't have a huge issue with the fact that he didn't run the ball for three more yards to set up the kicker. And I don't like the I don't think he was right, but and I don't like the philosophy, but I'm not going to kill him for it. And maybe the Bears need somebody else calling plays other than Matt Nagy. I'm open to that as well. But the biggest issue with the Bears is the quarterback. Let's not get it twisted. Mitchell Trubisky, mid-30s now, as far as games started in the NFL, he cannot play. He'll make a great throw. He will. And he'll show some elusiveness, too. It'll be impressive. He'll pick up a first down. He'll get you into field goal range to win the game, which he did on Sunday. But he's proven over and over again that he's not consistent and that he's not a franchise quarterback, which you most times need to win a Super Bowl. So one of the key things in life is to move on when you know it's not working. And the Bears and Trubisky are never going to work. And the Bears, Ryan Pace specifically, has to look in the mirror and say, you know what? 
Let's revisit how I got this wrong when I drafted him over Patrick Mahomes and I drafted him over Deshaun Watson. Let me look in the mirror here. What were my biases? What was I seeing? I'm going to take this as a learning experience, and I'm moving forward. That's all you can do. General managers are not perfect, and Ryan Pace has done a lot of good things. But this was a swing and a miss. And so do you keep standing in the same – you're not going to leave the batter's box – so to speak, but this guy can no longer be a part of the equation. So how long will the Bears hold on? Maybe it's the rest of this year. You're not making the playoffs at this point. You're three and four would take a miracle. So maybe you let Mitch play and perhaps open up the offense even more and see if a miracle could happen. Might as well. Playing Chase Daniel makes no sense. But at the end of the year, You have to be aggressive and move forward, and perhaps even before the end of the year. I don't know. Do you want Nick Foles? If I was the Jacksonville Jaguars, I'd stick with Gardner Minshew, and I'd be happy to get Nick Foles' contract off my books. Unlikely that that would happen. But in the offseason, Phillip Rivers, Jameis Winston, Cam Newton, those names don't excite me, but something along those lines has to happen, and you got to move forward. It's okay, Ryan Pace. Made a mistake. It happens. Going to hurt the franchise for a long time, but you still have to move forward. And moving forward, subscribe, like, give a rating to On The Mark. Tell a friend as the podcast coming out every Monday afternoon. Thanks to David Ross. Thanks to Tim Donahue. And most importantly, thank you for listening. This has been On The Mark with yours truly, Mark Carmen. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.